Please remain standing for God's word. Today's passage comes from Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. Then he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Now when the 10 heard it, uh, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Gainesville State School is a maximum security facility for youth offenders. To be a student here is to be a convicted criminal. Students that serve the majority of their sentence plus meet strict academic and behavioral standards earn a shot at the school's slightest brush with the outside world the chance to play football. But as every game is an away game in a competitive and sometimes hostile environment, players find defeated seasons reflections of defeated lives. My peers around me that play on the same team, I have heard them being called racial slurs and all kinds of other stuff by an opposing players. They're trying to prove a point that we already lost our chance to play high school football by the decisions we made. Heading into their final 2008 game against Grapevine Faith Christian School, Gainesville State players look to end a demoralizing season. However, Grapevine Faith coach Chris Hogan right there, Dunnington. looked to end something entirely different. When I saw them on the schedule, we felt like here are 16, 17, 18-year-old kids, and they're somebody's little boy, and they're locked up in prison. So the idea was to just give them hope. When the boys arrived, we had fixed them a meal, shared the gospel with them that day before the game, and we have a big banner for them. They run through the banner. We have people who made spirit signs, and then half of our crowd literally goes across, and we have a roster with their name and, and cheer for them. So they got the same experience that most every other kid in Texas gets on a Friday night. I was surprised. I was like, they were calling us by our names and everything, and at first we thought that they had another player with the same name. So. I didn't know what to think. It was just, I don't know, it was just something I felt like God was just touching up, touching upon all of us and letting us know that there's people out there that care about you. They could care less what we was in here for or the crime we committed, and they want to love us like their own kids. Did you hear what Max said? He said, they called me by name. They called me by name. In the same way that God calls us by name. 
You see, this crowd, this school went beyond just making it a nice day to building a relationship with those kids. Winning the soul of America is a battle for the hearts, minds, and souls of everyone in our culture. It happens one person at a time with no timetable except the timetable of the Holy Spirit. But You see, it does happen one person at a time, but in order to get to the hearts and the minds of, of those in the most uh, extreme places, we're called by our scriptural roots to feed the poor, visit the prisoner, and stand against, against injustice. You see, the gospel is a two-edged sword that cuts to the heart of the sinner and cuts away injustice. Uh, this month, I've been going through chapters 19 and 20 of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' interaction with rich young ruler, his disciples, telling the parable of the generous landowner. It's all about power. It's all about uh, what God values. It's all about, really, what Jesus is saying. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. All are equal in the sight of God. Jesus challenges his disciples. Success, blessing, God's plan is radically different than what was being taught that day and in some ways what we are taught. That's what I want to talk about today. To look at success and blessing through the eyes of service. For it's not for self, but for others that defines our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength, our redeemer. May these words be your words. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're looking at a conversation between Jesus, the mother of James and John, and James and John. It starts with these words. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. Now, at first, this seems outrageous. A woman coming to Jesus to ask for a favor? But when we do a little research, we realize that this woman was probably the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Salome. She's Jesus' aunt. And it was not unusual in that day for family members to come and ask for favors for those in authority for their children. So she goes to Jesus. She bows before him. She says, do me a favor. You know, it's not who you know. It's not what you know, but who you know, Right? And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, we know the request was outrageous. To sit at Jesus' right and left hand was not a position of power. It was a position of sacrifice. 
And now we know why she's bowing before Jesus. She sees him as a, an earthly king, one that you would bow, that you would get prostrate, prostrate before. She still sees the kingdom as one of position, power, and authority. Jesus answers with a question. He says, with a question, you don't know what you're asking, turning to James and John. Then he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we're able. We'll go from fishermen to the throne. All of us would like that, right? Jesus has got to be frustrated. They just don't get it. He tells them over and over again. He tells them parables. He uses metaphors. And they still are stuck trying to measure success by position and social position. Now Jesus addresses James and John. He says, are you able to drink from this cup? Yes, we're able. Hmm. There's irony here. Jesus knows they don't get it. They don't get it. Then Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not for mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. Quickly, Jesus foreshadows the suffering and the martyrdom. James was the first disciple to be martyred when the Romans chopped off his head. John who tradition tells us the Romans tried to boil him in oil, and he survived. It scared him to death, so they, they put him on an island. They said, we got to get this guy where he's not. <laughs> but the right and left hand, it was reserved for those even lower than the disciples. When the ten heard of it, they were angry with the two brothers. Well, duh. You're going to send your aunt, who Jesus can't say no to, to ask for a favor? How fair is that? Of course they were grumbling. But they don't get it either, do they? They see this position of the right and left hand of Jesus as a place of, as a place of honor. Not as a place of sacrifice. And the cup from which Jesus drinks is not a cup dripping with ambition and power, but rather it is filled with the blood of sacrifice. Hmm. Then Jesus says, But whoever wishes to be great among you must be servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. This is the real point of the story. This is the point. And Jesus, Matthew uses a word to describe what Jesus is talking about, dolos, which is transferred slave. It's used several times in the New Testament. And in the Jewish community, dolos or slave had an interesting connotation. There were two kinds of slaves. There were slaves who were working out of a debt or a wrongdoing. And there was typically a, typically a time period. The Romans were the ones that sold and bought slaves. 
And about a third of this particular time in the first century, about a third of the population were slaves. But in the Jewish community, there was a second kind of slave. A slave that said, I voluntarily put myself under your authority. In Exodus, it describes the ritual associated with this bond slavery. The owner would take the lobe of the ear of the one who has given themselves to the master and they would take an awe and drill a hole into the ear permanently, drive it into his doorpost so that others would know that this one is committed wholly with their life to a master. It speaks to those who are swallowed up in the will of another. This is what Jesus is calling us to be. Whether we like it or not, this is the servant slave Jesus is inviting us, not forcing us, but inviting us to put ourselves totally and completely under the, the total will of the master to be, move from being fed by Jesus to feeding others, to move from following the servant to serving the followers, to move from receiving God's blessing to blessing the outsider, to move from self to others, to move from self to others. Now, I, I want to say right now that this is a difficult task, and, and we all strive for it, and, and in most cases, we all fail. We just get up, dust ourselves off, and take the next step. So, so don't beat yourself up about, about servanthood. See, though, the opportunity that is before us to make Jesus our master. Now, but I do want to say, in conservative churches today, the term social gospel, and I kind of want to shift a little bit here, has gotten a bad name. The term is used to describe those who focus on changing society, the systems of society, and oftentimes it's at the expense of personal conversion. They kind of downplay that part to focus on the systems and the, and the culture. But what I love about being a Methodist is that at the heart of the Methodist movement is John Wesley's focus on both individual conversion and social change. He believed there were two types of holiness. A personal holiness and a social holiness. Personal holiness is growing our personal relationship with God. Social holiness is showing our personal relationship with God through caring for the needs of others in the name of Jesus. Wesley believed that everything started in salvation. Everything started with the commitment to follow Christ. Everything started by putting our will under the will of the Father. But the transformation of the heart, soul, and mind then drives us out to work in the community.
Some have used the term full-orbed gospel to describe this. Others uh, have described a holistic gospel. I like the term evangelical social gospel. To be saved for a purpose. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. This is not about power. It's not about position. It's about giving our will up so that we may be changed in order to change the world. Here's what we know about Wesley. Wesley was one of the first to condemn slavery when no one thought there was anything to condemn about slavery. He not only preached a gospel of conversion, but preached a total transforming of the community. And for this reason, Methodists have led the way in the early temperance movements and education and children's home and troubled teen programs and hospitals and prison ministries and elderly care and disaster relief and community centers of hope. For us, it is not enough just to be saved. We are saved for a purpose. Driven out of this room, out those doors, in the community to make a difference for Jesus Christ. I want to go back to the Gainesville State School. For that night in 2008, a woman by the name of Carmen Studdard was sitting in the stands. Uh, Carmen was a mother, and uh, her career was a script writer or script editor for a movie company. Through a relationship with Christian faith, that night moved her. Now, here's, here's her background. She had a relationship with um, I Have a Dream Foundation, and she'd brought troubled children into her home. But that night, she made a commitment to bring one of those young men into her home. You saw his face on the screen, Mac, Mac White. Since then, Carmen has told her story of how God was calling her to do something to change society. It was a huge step. At first, she says that she, she resisted it. Are you serious, God? Bringing a convicted, uh, 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 person, per, an infected, a convicted person into my house? But she couldn't get away from it. Through a mentoring program, she invited Mike White, Mike Mac White, to come live with her family. Back in 2012, I got the chance to speak to both her and Mac about their experience. She's an amazing woman, and you just see her faith glow. And by the way, Mac was not the last young man to come into her home, and I would imagine that she's still doing it because she believes in the transforming power of Jesus Christ. She talks about, she talked about how, <laughs> how this experience put her faith on steroids. According to Carmen, it was always a blessing. When I spoke to Mac, I asked him how it was different 
He said this, he said, I experienced a family of love, acceptance, and grace. He called Carmen his angel. He said, for the first time in my life, they held me accountable with love instead of anger. I knew the first night that my life could be different. Mac went on to talk about how he changed him forever. And I happen to know that he went on to college, graduated from college, and is working with those young men in the Gainesville State School. Carmen believed that she was blessed to be a blessing. Here's, I just want to read one more quote from her. She said, just think what our world would be like if everyone would act to help someone else every day. Now, not everybody's called to bring a convicted felon into their home. There's just not. But all of us are called to do something for Jesus Christ. All of us are called by our salvation to make a difference out there. And I don't know where God is calling you, but the first step is to take a look at our lifestyle and, and to possibly make some lifestyle changes so that we can hear God, that we can hear that direction and that, and that, and that, and that push that God might be giving to us. It is about opening our eyes to see need. Now, I think God knows how hard we try, and God knows the pressures of having a family and, and a life and everything else. I, I, this, this, this word this morning is not a word of condemnation. It is a word of encouragement to see what God can do in your life with your life to make a difference in this world. Take the first step. Take the first step. And ask yourself, is my faith big enough to be a slave for Jesus? Or am I putting restrictions on it? When my kids were little, I thought about this. Um, even when they couldn't walk, we bought them shoes. Anybody recognize these? How ridiculous would it have been to make my daughter wear these for the rest of her life? No. As we grow, we expand. Maybe it's time we need to put a little bigger shoes on our faith so our feet and our faith can take us out where God needs us. Amen.